Let's go to Isaiah chapter 41, please. Isaiah 41. And we're going to cover three chapters. I told you that as we come to this um, last half of Isaiah, we're actually in some real, this is summit material. This is like thin air when you come to scripture. And I don't want us to get too dizzy. So we're going to, we're going to be zeroing in on aspects of it. We actually just did a single chapter last week, Isaiah 40. And we're going to look at three tonight, and not three in their entirety, but three portions of these three chapters. Um, Because what I want to do is I want to develop for you guys some of the themes that are in this great block. The second movement of Isaiah. The first movement, remember, chapters 1 through 39 was judgment. And Isaiah was like, you guys better get your act together. 700s BC, Israel was still a kingdom. They still had a king. They had a city. They had a temple. Well... In movement two, which we entered in chapter 40, our prophet Isaiah seems to be looking ahead, knowing that Israel's kingdom will no longer stand, the king will no longer be on the throne, and the temple will be dismantled along with the city. And he's talking to the people who will be one day exiles, foreigners in another land called Babylon, and he becomes not the prophet of doom and judgment, but he now takes the voice of a poet who's offering comfort. And so these are chapters 40 through 55. And this is how it moves. Um, And I will be teaching you guys according to these movements, but this will not necessarily be in chapter order. Does that make sense? Maybe let me put it another way. Um, Something we don't always do, we try to go through the scriptures as they are, but um, I felt that this was a section where I want to take topics and and go through the chapters where those topics are covered. These topics are marbled. They're marbled throughout these chapters. Um, but as I, as I was reading, I was like, well, we could just go chapter, chapter, chapter. But I'm going to sound pretty repetitive at a certain point. And I think you guys, will, <laughs> you guys would have felt that. So I thought, instead, why don't I just take some of, for example, idolatry is in these three chapters. Let's talk about idolatry tonight. And then we'll talk about another theme that's in these chapters. So here's how it goes, okay? And then um, we'll pray and we'll um, get into these chapters. Um, Okay, so Isaiah 40, we had last week this invitation. Comfort, comfort my people, said the prophet. Because God is going to bring you back. Like your punishment is done. And then he's talked about there's a way through the wilderness. Come through it. Come back home. But Israel's protesting. We can't. You've abandoned us. And then God said, ah, but if you wait for me, You will mount up on wings. You will grow eagle's wings and you will fly. There's this invitation in Isaiah 40 to grow your wings and to fly with God out of your bondage, out of your exile. Okay. So now what we're going to hit with idolatry is the problem. Idolatry is heavy. Idolatry will weigh us down. It will cause your wings to never be able to flap. You'll never get off the ground and you'll be stuck. So Isaiah has a lot to say about idols in these chapters. Then next week, we will look at the greatness of God. Every time Isaiah mentions idolatry, he then mentions the greatness of God. He is so great. He is so singular. He is so unique. He is so, you you can't duplicate him that idolatry looks pathetic next to this God. So we'll look at the chapters that deal with his greatness next week. Then this section of Isaiah has a tremendous series of songs, which scholars have termed the servant songs. 
And it's about a servant who will come and lead the people and include the nations. Spoiler alert, we know from the New Testament that that servant is Jesus. So we have these prophecies of a coming one. We'll deal with that in the future on its own. And then lastly, we will close the second movement of Isaiah with the final chapters, um, 54 and 55. There are invitations. He closes the section with an invitation to come. You see what I'm doing. I'm trying to lead you out of Babylon through the wilderness to what I have for you. I'm trying to give you wings. I'm trying to rip off the weights of idolatry. I'm to show you my greatness. I'm sending you my servant to lead you. Now I'm going to invite you to enter and eat and partake of this restoration. So that's what we'll be doing. Got it? And you're like, oh, I, saw I don't remember it. That's good. Okay. Um, let's pray. Lord, we pray that tonight you would deliver us as your word is spoken, that it would be the truth that sets us free and that it would deliver us from the bondage of idolatry, the crushing weight of giving our adoration and our strength and our praise to something undeserving of it. We pray that you would free us from the cultural bonds that tell us, that command to us what is important. And that instead you'd open our ears to hear what you say is important. That you'd open our eyes to see the treasure that your kingdom desires. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 41. You may be wondering why I have a sofa up here. I actually have a guest, and he's going to come join us. So give me a minute. He's, he needs help. All right, buddy. You ready? Here you go. Right here. Should be good. Make sure you're comfy. You're going to be here for a while. I tend to preach a while. Okay. Good. I don't know what you call him, but he's a Smurf. Say hi, Smurf. He's a little shy, so. So, um, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Build a God Workshop. Today, we have a God that we can... Well, this is the place where you can build your own God. Isn't it great? We have one of our finest productions. As you can see, the designer of this one liked the tone blue. Blue speaks of the heavenlies, so this is one of those kind. And the white, notice the white, the white, uh, it's, it's purity. Sorry if I got you a little dirty. And um, the glasses speak of his wisdom. We're dealing with quite a God here. And I thought today we'd get to know him a little bit in case you wanted to design a God just like this. Or if you learn from this God that you prefer pink, no glasses, and a buzz cut instead of a hat. So, here we go. Build a God workshop. Um, hi, Smurf. How are you doing today? Yeah. You could, okay. There you go. Um, good? I told you he's a little shy. Okay. Um, cool. Tell me, tell me, like, how did everything begin? Like, creation. Oh, you don't like the word creation? Okay. Well, um, 
like, what was the past? Tell us, like, what's happened before this. This isn't going as I had hoped. Sorry. Um, okay. Uh, maybe, maybe tell us something about the future. Like, what are you going to do tomorrow? Okay. Um, maybe we'll read Isaiah 41 then. Let's see. Maybe he will respond to something in here. So Isaiah 41, verse 21 Set forth your case, says Yahweh. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Did you hear that, Smurf? Why doesn't he tell us anything? Verse 23. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Are you a god? You're not telling us much. Then the text keeps pleading. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. It's like basically do something to give us a reaction. 24. Behold, You are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So whoever built Smurf at this Build-A-God workshop is an abomination. Because Smurf, I'm sorry, but you are nothing. You are less than nothing. This is an awkward first meeting, isn't it? I stirred up, verse 25, God says, I stirred up one from the north. Now, you're going to hear more about this one from the north next week, but you're you're getting a preview. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. His name is Cyrus. He's a king whom God is going to raise up, and this king Cyrus does not even know God, but God knows him, and he's going to do his will. From the rising of the sun, and he shall, call, he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. God's mocking the, the little gods, the idols. None of you said anything, and none of you have declared it. I, God says, I was first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. You're going to hear that good news preached later in this section of Isaiah. But when I look, there is none, there is no one among the gods. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives us an answer. Smurf, do you want to prove that wrong? So what, what, what should I do with my financial situation? No, I'm not giving it all to you. I can tell by the silence that that's what you want. 29. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Isaiah is not shy about idols, is he? So I'm going to leave Smurf here. I'm pretty sure he's not going to go anywhere. I'm pretty sure he's not going to say anything, so we're good. But let's go ahead and see what else Isaiah has to say about idolatry. Now, 
as we look at it, do remember that he's addressing a people who will be relocated from their homeland with their own temple, with Yahweh as their God in their midst, to another country who worships foreign pagan gods that they craft out of wood and metal and stone. And it's going to feel like because this nation came flying the flags of their gods and defeated our temple and relocated us to their place, it's going to feel to the Israelites like their gods are bigger and better and stronger. Like, like we live in the stone ages, but their gods are the way of the future. They have progress, man. And Israel's going to feel like they've just been swallowed up by a superior people with a superior religion. Because that's how it would look if their God beat your God up. So what does Isaiah do? He steps in and he has to say, (laughs) I just want you guys to think clearly for a minute. Let's think about the source of their gods. Let's think about what their gods actually do. Have their gods parted the Red Sea? Have their gods delivered a people out of Egypt? Have their gods been able to tell the future and it didn't just come true because he foresaw it, but it came true because this God commanded it to be what he wanted it to be? The future is our God's creation, Isaiah tells them. Not just something that the stone smurf looks at and says, yep, yep. Should I stay or should I go? Yep. Okay, so the next section, chapter 44, he's going to lay into the idolatry. Um, it's going to start in verse 9, but I want, us to, I want us to see some of the context around this. So 44 verse 1 says, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says Yahweh who made you. That's key. Yahweh made them. Who formed you from the womb and will help you. He formed them from the womb. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, another nickname for his people, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams out of the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am Yahweh's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, Yahweh's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, the king of Israel. So they belong to him, right? He made them, he formed them in the womb. Now they're writing his name upon them. And now Yahweh, the king of Israel and his redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, says this. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, There is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. He's Smurf is still saying nothing. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. 
So go to your build a God workshop, but you're just not going to produce another Yahweh. It's just not going to happen. So now Isaiah is going to poke a lot of fun. You might want to cover your ears, Smurf. Oh, right. You can't hear anything. Okay. He's going to poke a lot of fun at idolatry. This is good stuff right here. 44 verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all like. Can a human make a god? That's absurd to think, right? A god can make a human, but can a human make a god? It's absurd. They're all only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Now Isaiah is going to give us a little lesson and build a god workshop. This is how it works. Verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. (laughs) But he becomes hungry and his strength fails. If he drinks no water, he drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. Let's make it look like us. Let's make it look, you know, comfortable in our home. He cuts, verse 14, he cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. And so, welcome to the Build a God workshop. You come in and it's like, okay, here are some trees and some nice wood to choose from. We have cypress, known for its, uh, its aroma. We have oak, known for its great strength. And we have over here willow, for those who are sad, if you get it. Um, so there's all these options so that you can have this God just as you want it. And then it says in verse 15, Then it, the tree, it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a God out of the wood and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it. He burns in the fire, referring to the tree. Half of the tree he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. (laughs) If only he would have said, I've seen the light, but nope. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it he prays to it and says deliver me for you are my god now i hope you find the humor in this because isaiah is full on poking as much fun at idolatry as he can here and he's making this worshiper sound utterly ridiculous like okay i'm gonna pick the tree i want that one's a little too crooked that one is straight But I'm concerned that the wood won't match our living room. That is the one. And so they cut it down. And they're like, oh, cool. I got this whole tree. I think I'm going to use half of it for our fireplace. And then this 
quarter for our kitchen so we can cook in the stove. And yeah, we'll leave um, the rest. Whatever's left here, Craftsman, you make me a god out. You make me a god out of this. Notice the order there. The guy is using his tree for his own needs. Then he uses it for the god. The god's getting the leftovers of the trees of the forest. And then he makes it. And then it's like as if he didn't realize, out of the same stuff I just cooked food with, I just burned to keep myself warm, I'm going to ask it to deliver me. The it, the tree, the wood that I chopped down with a simple tool, an axe. So I want you to deliver me whom I chopped down with something as small as an axe. So I was like, do you guys see what's wrong here? This is absurd. What does humanity come to? (laughs) He definitely hasn't seen the light. I've seen the fire because he does not see much. And that's what he's going to tell us now in verse 18. And by the way, this is going to sound very reminiscent to something the Apostle Paul is going to say in Romans chapter 1. They know not, nor nor do they discern. The worshipers don't know. They don't discern. For he... Now, the New King James capitalizes he here, so it leads us to believe that the he is God in this instance. Um, God's name hasn't been used in a while, so it's a guess, but it, okay, so I, I like that. We'll go with it. For God, they don't know, they don't discern, for God has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Hey, wait a minute here. Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? I say, saying, nobody's thinking this clearly because idolatry does not help you think clearly. He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? The idolator, the worshiper of the idol, cannot see his situation clearly. This is the bondage that idolatry produces. It sucks us in, and Paul's going to use the terminology sin in the New Testament, um, Because the New Testament church, idolatry is something they had turned from, and now he talks about sin and how worshiping an idol is a sin. And sin, he says, like, it's slavery. It it clamps its jaws upon the one who does the act, and so does idolatry. It latches onto us, and we get stuck in this, we get stuck in this place. And, And here's where it gets really ironic is that on one hand, Isaiah is making light of idolatry, right? He's making light of it. He's poking fun at it. But on the other hand, there's nothing to make light of idolatry because it is serious and it can rip one's life apart. It can totally destroy us and send us into into the darkness of addiction. There's nothing light about it. There's nothing to make fun about it. It's a serious thing that people live in. And yet Isaiah is like poking fun at it. (laughs) But here's why, and this is what we need to see, is Isaiah is telling us about idols in light of Yahweh. 
in light of Yahweh, idolatry seems to be a light thing. It's insignificant. Compared to him, it's like the gum on the bottom of your shoe. Who cares about it? It's just annoying, if anything. So, Isaiah does want us to take it seriously. There's nothing light about idolatry. It is heavy. It is incredibly heavy. Now, fortunately, in our Build a God workshop, Smurf was stuffed with... Not sure, not sure what that is, but like styrofoam beans or something. So when I carried them out, it didn't strain me too much. But I had to carry you, didn't I? So in chapter 46 now, you're going to see his third reference to idolatry. Chapter 46, verse 1. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Bell is a title for Lord. Uh, he's, uh, he's using just the general, like we say this all the time as Christians, the Lord. Um, Bell was the Babylonian term for Lord, for Marduk is usually who they called Lord. Marduk was their chief deity. So it's shorthand for like the big guy, you know, the, the one on top of the other gods. But here we see Bell or Marduk bows down. Nebo, and Nebo was the son of Marduk, or one of the sons of Marduk, and he was the god of wisdom. He was very popular, Nebo was. It's one of the, you know, one of the gods that had more followers than more worshipers than the other gods. Um, Nebo stoops. So here we go. Some of the best of the Babylonian gods are sagging. These thing, uh, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. So when I brought Smurf out here, I had to carry him, right? And you, you saw me struggle under the great weight of... <laughs> but I had to carry him because... Sorry, I know you can't feel me poking your eye, but sorry anyways. <laughs> I had to carry him because he can't move himself. And yet here's Isaiah once again showing the idiocracy of idolatry and saying these gods can't move themselves they have to be carried so they stoop they bow down together they cannot save the burden but themselves go into captivity what happens when babylon's great empire crumbles and falls what happens to those gods Oh, they too, like the people, are taken as slaves and captives into exile. They're moved away. It's not like the God suddenly says, well, can't touch me, force field. They're taken away just like the people, just like the peasants and the slaves. So Isaiah um, continues in verse 3, speaking for God. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, All the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Why are you going to go around carrying a God, adding a weight, a burden to your life, when I am the mother who has born you from the beginning? I have literally carried you as a pregnant woman carries a baby. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made 
and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. So here is the proposition. Either carry a God or be carried by God. That's what Isaiah is offering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Build a God workshop. It's really attractive. You can have this tailor made to match your living room and fit your sofa and be your favorite color. But you got to carry it. You got to lug it. Every time I need to vacuum this sofa, I got to move you. I got to get underneath you. You're hogging up space. Every time somebody comes in the house, rather than politely offering your spot, because you don't mind the floor after all, I have to move you. And if I overlay him with gold, I'd be careful because I don't want to damage my investment. But God, but God is actually looking at us and saying, but you're, you're helpless like an idol, and I want to care for you, and I want to move you, and I want to carry you as I care for you, and I want to I meet your needs. So Isaiah is bringing this twist for us. So verse 5, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. (laughs) Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God And there is none like me. And as we'll see next week, his proof of this, what makes him better than idols, is verse 10. I am God declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That is what makes him God. He acts. He acts. He is not acted upon. He is the actor. He's the one that's composing history. He's the, he's the playwright. He's He's the one who's narrating the whole thing. And he knows exactly what's coming up next. And if someone says, I don't want to do it, then he's like, well, I have a place for you. Go backstage. And he's the one who can make it happen. Even when in humankind's free will to rebel, here I go. I just brought the tension of his like future telling and free will, but you know, we'll do something else with that. Even when humankind uses their free will to rebel, he's like, yeah, I'll just recreate the future around you. I mean, he can't be stopped. He can't be carried. He can't be removed. Oh, sorry, I would rather have Ron sit up here. So sorry, Samara, if you got to go. Like, we can't do that to God. He is the great actor, the one who's making things happen. 
Smurf, meanwhile, hasn't done a single thing without my help this whole time. So there's your big difference. Now, idolatry is heavy. It's going to entrap you. It's going to dull in your senses. It's going to make you spiritually dumb. You're going to be in darkness. Um, (coughs) And then as we see, what's going to happen is you're going to be stuck with this thing, and you're going to have to do all the work for it. Think of all the things in our society that that's literally true for people. We get attached to something, we pour our investment into it, and then we get stuck having to make it happen and lug it around. So let's not, let's not poke fun at the Babylonians for their idolatry. <laughs> Who would do that? When we realize we've just made really sophisticated idols in our modern age. Really sinister because they don't sit there with this like name. I am a god. (laughs) The interesting thing about idolatry is it actually tends, it seems to be one of the worst sins in the Bible. Jesus seemed to be totally patient with so many lifestyles and sins in the Gospels, right? Right? Do you ever see him impatient with a sinner? He's impatient with the religious and upright people, that's for sure. But how is that? And yet, and then, and then you see um, Romans chapter 1, and actually, I think you should turn to Romans 1 while I'm sharing some of this with you. Go to Romans 1, and you'll see how Paul feels about it. But in 1 John as well, 1 John is this beautiful letter about love God, love other people. That's it, guys. That's it. The symbol of our faith, the cross, tells you everything you need to know for life. Love God and love people. Vertical, horizontal. That is Christianity's practice as simply as it can be put. 1 John's all about that. You do these things, you know you belong to God. And then out of nowhere, the last verse of 1 John says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And the letter ends. And what? Not once did he mention idolatry throughout the letter. Not once did he go on and on about cultural ills. Literally just love God by obeying his commands, love each other by caring for one another. And then all of a sudden he ends his letter with, oh, by the way, little children, keep yourselves from idols. But I'm out of time, so go figure that out. It was that important to John that he didn't even, he just, he, I have to throw this in as a salutation Like, this is the biggest problem facing a Christian is idolatry. And the early church so believed in idolatry that they wouldn't baptize you until you have gone at least a year, maybe two or three, through de-idolatrization. I'm trying to just, like, detoxification, basically. You're a Roman. You're in a pagan society. There's an idol for every walk of life and everything and every shop and every game and every civic event. There's an idol sponsoring everything. So you come into the church, we need to detoxify you from idolatry. So they give it some time. And then at your baptism, they actually cast demons out of you. <laughs> That's how seriously they took idolatry. It's everywhere in the culture. And then Romans chapter 1. Paul 
launches this great letter about the gospel, about what Christ has done for us, and he launches it with this message about idolatry. So, after his introductions, and okay, I'm coming around. Chapter 1, verse 18, he gets into the heart of his letter. 118, for the wrath of God is revealed. He's not talking about the end time wrath of God. This is present tense. It is right now, under your very nose, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you remember when he was talking about the idols in chapter 44, how it said that they do not know? Uh, They do not know, they do not discern, for he has shut their eyes and they cannot see. Remember that? They're blind. Here, Paul, borrowing the language. They suppress the truth. For verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did, here's the key, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and Here's how Paul talks about the fall in Genesis 3. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Do you remember Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember that? All sin and fall short of the glory of God. Well, here's how. 3.23 is explained by 1.23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's how we've fallen short of his glory. We exchanged it. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, God created everything, right? almost forgot I had this. Here we go. This is, this is like prop night. Go for one, why not go for all? Okay. Oh, dear. Okay. So, in the beginning, one thing I love about the classroom is you have whiteboards and... You guys know the story very well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so, over six days, he creates the heavens and the earth. And we have flying things, swimming things, crawling things, plant-eating things, lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. 
right? We have the sun, the moon, the stars. We have the, the water cycle. Everything there in Genesis 1, it's all made. In the beginning, God created everything. So it, it came from him. But then in the midst of this, on the last day, day six, the climax of Genesis 1. And by the way, you know this is true, not because we're humans and we interpret ourselves as the most important thing in the world, but because the creation of man in day six is the, is the same length as days one through five. So day six is slowed way down to say, pay attention, it's important. So the humans were then created because God had a special role for us right there, smack dab in the middle. He created his creation. And then he made the humans so that they could be the go-between between God and the creation. We were priests. And creation was his temple. He walked in it. He breathed in it. He was with us. And we, we were to be the guardians. It said in Genesis 1:26, right? Come, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion, dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the, the beasts that crawl in the field, all he, he names all of them. That was what we were here for. We, in the image of God, given his glory, were to co-rule with him. But as Paul says, Paul says that we fell short of that glory. And in Romans 1.23, We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. The very things we're supposed to be ruling, we start to make images of. Now, here's the irony of all this, okay? So God is the great king of everything he made. And it says that he made humans in his image. This is no stretch because it's the same wording to say that we were the first idols of God. He put us in the world to be his representatives, his images, the same way a pagan would put an idol in their temple, an image in their temple to say, this is a representative of our God. God put us here to be his representatives, made in his image. We are the closest thing that you can get to an idol of God. That's why he's demanded no idols, none. I already have one, and it's you. I don't want you to diminish yourself by making an idol. I don't want you to diminish me by making an idol. So here's the thing. He makes us in his image, which means he invests in us his glory. He invests in us a certain degree of his power. He's given us his authority to be his representatives on earth to the creation. But rather than using that power to bring the creation back to God and to give back to God glory and worship and praise, Instead of giving it back to him so that the the flow can continue, he he gives us a commission and purpose and power, and we give to him praise and thanks and honor, and this flow would keep going. Instead of doing that, you know what Paul says we did is that we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling creation. So, 
we essentially did this. Oh, almost done. We gave, creation, we gave creation our power, and the whole thing turned upside down. So when we gave creation our power by making it into images and giving it praise and saying, ooh, I love sex so much, and ooh, money's going to make me so much happier, and oh, if only I had power, right? The three wishes of a genie, of course. If only I had power by, by these were great tools, right? But as soon as we gave our adoration and our worship to these things, we gave it our power, and now it rules. And this is what we call sin. This is what we call bondage. This is what we call slavery. Idolatry is heavy. And now we have a culture, don't we, that is ruled by things that ought not to rule us, things that are supposed to be tools for life, money, sex, power, just three general categories Because we gave creation the honor and the glory and the power. We shouldn't, of course, put God right beneath us. Excuse me. Right beneath us. And now we have wonderful Build a God workshops. And what's happened is rather than accepting the fact that we are the image of God, we have instead decided to make God in our image. And ultimately, the worst idolatry yet isn't just that we've given our authority to the created order, but that we have put God himself beneath our feet and said, and we want you to do what we want you to do. Come at our bidding. Be the God we want you to be. Um, Conform to our theology and our image of you. This is why idolatry is evil. Every evil in the world is stemmed from our failure to live as the image of God, to be shaped by him, to represent who he is. And so you know this. I mean, everything on that that diagram I just showed you, like you already know it intuitively. You already know you have a struggle against the created world. There's a, there's a, as Paul describes in Romans 6 and 7, there's a struggle for mastery over who's ruling who. You feel it. Um, for me, it's every time someone offers me ice cream. I feel, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but when I can't resist it, there's something wrong with that. There really is. Hunger, my, <coughs> my appetite can control me. That's not good. Yeah, oh, it's just one night. Yeah, okay, fine, of course it is. But if it's true that my appetite rules me, it's going to be a bunch of little decisions that turn me into a glutton. See, you don't become a glutton suddenly. You become a glutton because you forgot to practice fasting. We forgot to practice um, that we have the free will to say no to something. We forgot that we, as the image of God, are supposed to have authority But instead, we gave in, and we honored food for more than it's worth. That's just one example, right? And I'm I'm hitting on that one because I relate to it, I guess. I think we all do, because it's something we deal with every day, food. Money, and money's the same way. You know, anytime something is the... 
You can tell where your God is by what is helping you make decisions. So if all of my decisions are driven by a lust for more money, then I clearly have put money out of balance. Now, of course, there are times when you have to budget and you have to balance and you have to, like, I need to make sure we're not going to be in debt. Right. That's good because someone who money rules is like credit card this, credit card that, credit card that, right? That's not good either. But if, like, you're in a stable place, but you're always like, I never have enough. And all your decisions are calculated by how can I get more? Well, if we go to this church, it's like two miles further. So we'll go to this church, even though they're not teaching anything true, because it'll save us money. Like, <laughs> that would be a, you see how bad that would be, right? That's a bad situation. That's idolatry. And it's flooding our nation. It's flooding the church. It always makes me pause and think, where have I been born into this system of idolatry? And I'm not even aware that I'm a part of it. But I think the key, the, the biggest takeaway from this, you know, I give examples, and I'm not saying, like, you have to feel the same example applies to you. But the key here that you should feel is whatever you are carrying, whatever you have to move its arms to make it mean something to you, that is an idol. Okay? We are not meant to be carrying smurf. God is meant to be carrying us. And I want us to live free, free from those burdens and the heaviness and the bondage and the addiction and the slavery. I want us to live free. So I want us to remember, this is exactly what Isaiah was saying, but let's, we'll put it in familiar language. Matthew 11, verse 28. You know this very well. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christian, do you feel like that's you tonight? If it's not, maybe we're carrying an idol. Maybe. It's worth looking into. But the good news is, Jesus isn't tonight slapping you and saying, how, how dare you forget about me? He's inviting us. Come to me. Which dawned on me as I was taking communion um, that if, if God himself has become a burden to you, maybe you're just following a man version of him. A man-made version of him. Because I don't believe that, at least in my whatever time of being a Christian, that the more I walk with Jesus, I, I don't feel like he's a burden and demanding. I feel like there's more and more of a joy, and there's more and more of a willingness, and he invites gently. And maybe, maybe God's been a burden. Maybe God's been a scary thing that people use to manipulate you or to drive you, or you've just felt this dread I don't think you know God expressed through Jesus. And maybe you need to put down the idolatry of God himself and come to know come to know him as the one who gives you an, 
a light burden and an easy yoke. 